G'day, and welcome to the AHDC podcast series, Health Design on the Go. I'm your host, David Cummins, and today I'm excited to be spending time with Alex Belcastro, Senior Vice President of Medical Precincts at Northwest Healthcare Properties at REIT, where she currently leads precincts at the largest specialised healthcare REIT in Australia and New Zealand. Alex is an absolute force to be reckoned with in the world of health. Starting off on site at Multiplex, Alex progressed her career working as a project manager at John Staff Victoria, eventually co-founding John Staff New South Wales with Tim McHugh. Alex soon became the Chief Business Development Officer at Ramsey Healthcare, overseeing a portfolio of hospital assets valued at approximately $8 billion. Alex is a member of Chief Executive Women and has been appointed by Science and Technology Australia to drive the national STEM agenda. Additionally, Alex serves on the Precincts Committee of the Property Council of New South Wales. Alex has been recognised by the International Academy for Design and Health for her contributions to healthcare design. She has also conducted research into preventing invasive fungal disease during construction, which was published in the Internal Medicine Journal. Welcome, Alex. Thank you for your time to be here. Thank you for having me, David. That is a large and very impressive bio. For those of you that don't know you, I think there is more that have heard of you and know your career. What drives you so much into the world of health, health design and health property? Thanks, David. I guess for me, I've got a really strong sense of purpose. My why is very much focused on healthcare services and the provision of healthcare. For me, as a child growing up, I experienced a few episodes of care within mental health space with some loved ones. And one of my very, very dear friends growing up suffered quite badly from anorexia nervosa. So I knew the impact that you could have on someone's recovery through the built form, through infrastructure and the service provision, but then more to the point around the models of care and the delivery and the quality of that healthcare delivery. So completely fascinates me and still gets me out of bed every morning and I'm really passionate about it. So that's where it started. Yeah, I think it's a really important point to note purpose in healthcare because I'm very, very similar, like family history, which I always grew up thinking hospitals were second home and to see the difference that healthcare can make and good design can make, but also the difference that bad design and bad models of care can make really drove me to where I am today. And I tremendously enjoy it. What have you seen in the last 30 plus years in that world of mental health, in the world of design and models of care? I think hospital design has come a long way. I think we have a long way to still come. Predominantly for me, there's different categories of focus. So for mental health design, it's been harder through the stigmification of mental health over the years. And obviously there's been a destigmification in some respects, but the stigma is still very much alive. I regularly attend meetings where things are said and I stand and correct the record and say, we will not be shoving the mental health unit at the back of the campus because that is not where it belongs. We'll be putting car parking there perhaps, but certainly not mental health. So I think we've come a long way. We have a long way to go. What I have seen change over the years is, is a greater awareness and understanding of how research that is carried out can be translated into better design outcomes, how the models of care influence the design and how the patient treatment and delivery model needs to actually be really clear around what is it that we are trying to achieve in this space for our patients and with the patient at the centre of the care journey and their families and loved ones? I can't emphasise enough in healthcare, 
that it's not just about the patient, the doctor, the nurses, the allied health staff, the operators. It's not just about those people. It's about the people that love the people that are getting treatment and that are undergoing that episode of care and the support that they need from that space and that infrastructure. So I think we've come a long way. We are trying to apply design and theory and research in what we do. We have a lot of really passionate people in the sector who have spent, in some instances, decades understanding and designing these facilities. We've got state governments that have really contributed in huge ways to deliver better hospitals and actually bring the private sector to account as well and say, hey, you've got to do better. The mass investment that we've seen across a number of the major state governments in Australia has really lifted the bar in the private sector. And I think that's been a great thing. So for me, if I look over at least the last two decades that I've been doing this, I can see more holistically at a macro level, just better investment in healthcare, better design delivery, more focus on the aesthetic across the public and the private sector. Whether you're looking at maternity services or you're looking at ICUs or you're looking at operating theatres or you're looking at a mental health hospital or rehabilitation facilities, I think we're seeing significant improvements generally across the board. Yeah, I, I totally agree. In reference to design, I was looking at a hospital the other day from the 60s and it just had access to nature. It had walking paths, a lot of things outdoors. The hospital was sort of stuck in time. But when I look at mental health facilities these days, it is very much a concrete jungle still with a little bit of access to nature. But that ability to have this vast space of nature is quite limited. How does one get that balance between finding access to nature and open spaces versus building something that can get a return, for want of better words. Yeah, it's challenging in terms of the space that mental health requires to really give access to biophilic design. We know the benefits of biophilic design on people that are well, let alone unwell. So I think the emphasis of you know, we shouldn't just be complying with the Australian Health Facility Guidelines to provide enough courtyard space to get people out into the courtyards for a specific time of the day during their programs. We need to really be integrating plants, full access to natural light and outdoor spaces and having a situation where if the patient is involuntary and they can't go for a walk as part of their treatment program, that we have adequate facilities not within a concrete jungle for them to get better and recuperate obviously within the confines of that patient safety. I think that in the past there were older facilities that had even greater access to natural light and outdoor areas than we do today. Not so recently but say 10 years ago we built a lot of big public mental health facilities in a number of big capital cities across Australia and I can think of a few of them and we were so focused on patient safety that it almost became the only focus for a period there where we were just so obsessed myopically focused on patient safety of course patient safety is the primary thing that you need to focus on in any respect but with mental health design you can go down a rabbit hole and if you lose your complete sense of what else you need to provide it's very difficult so that consumer perspective which is really captured through the clinicians, captured through the nursing staff to user groups. We don't tend to have a lot of consumer groups within mental health that work that effectively. We usually have that come through the staff as they're going through that process. They're always really focused on patient safety and for the right reasons, but sometimes we get a little bit lost in that and it becomes a driver for the design well beyond where we want it to go. And we get a little bit perverse with the outcomes there. 
Yeah, it's a good point. I have done an interview with someone about the importance of consumer groups or user groups with mental health patients, but it seems to be a bit of a taboo subject where they don't want to actually interact with them on that level. I understand both sides of the coin, but to only speak to clinicians has its positives, but also negatives as well versus actually speaking to people there and their families who would like to come and visit them as well. Yeah, I agree. For me, having been somebody who's dropped somebody off for an acute stay within a mental health hospital in a voluntary and an involuntary situation, I know how stressful it is to do that and to be driving away from that loved one in that facility thinking about the state that you've left them in, not only from a mental and physical perspective, but also from the surrounds in which you've left them. And I think that you're very lucky to leave a patient with a group of people that you trust and certainly under psychiatrists that you trust. But beyond that, the physical environment in which you leave them is imprinted in your mind for the rest of your life. And it is not something that you just get over. So having been somebody who at 16 years of age had seen those environments and had to pack myself up, leave those environments in a sense, to leave a loved one in that state. As I've moved through my career, I've always thought of the families and the loved ones. And even when it's been outside of mental health and it's been ICU or it's been theatres, it's the design of also the people that are caring for that individual and how do you make sure that you are supporting them because some of these moments carry for years and years and years. It's so very important for us to understand that. So for me, consumers and consumer advocacy and asking people how they felt through that episode of care. I give the example of you drop your mother off or you drop your sister off or you drop your brother off and they say to you, I feel like you're leaving me in a prison to this place is actually really nice. It's a very different scenario. Also for the staff that have an incredible difficult job to be in an environment where they feel that the investment's been made in the space that they have to come to work every day, the attraction and the retention of those staff in what can be very difficult circumstances is also imperative. And the staff's access to natural light and the staff's access to biophilic design, because they, at the end of the day, are bringing these people across the line in many ways, whether it's medical or surgical or rehabilitation, it's all very important to have that safe space. I totally agree. One of my friends works in mental health and I'd say we're hopefully none of my friends are listening to this, but long story short, they understood the biophilic benefit, but they literally just put a poster of a tree. So still today, we have this push about money versus benefits to patient care. And the obvious solution is more natural light, more biophilic benefit, because ultimately that will help reduce the length of stay, reduce anxiety, increase clinical outcomes. So what's something that we as a team need to try and introduce more? What's something that's just Alex's must-have for mental health? It's a tough question. I think the first thing in mental health is that before you start giving advice or doing what you think is your job, you need to understand the whole continuum. You need to understand the sector how it's funded, how the public and private operations work, how voluntary and involuntary work. Go and read the Act. 
get an actual understanding of how complex the mental health environment is and how complex it is as a sector. Then understand the role of a psychiatrist versus psychologist versus what types of nursing staff are provided, what models of care are being provided. Then get an understanding of the programs. This is all information that is readily available to you as a professional and I implore you, you know, healthcare isn't easy. There is no way you get into health because it's easy. You need to understand the models of care. You need to understand, is this an adolescent unit? Is this a mood disorders unit? What's the target market? What does the organization who is running this hospital try to get out of these programs that it runs? How is it differentiated? So once you actually understand the business, you understand the service provision, whether it's public or private, you understand their differentiation, then you can come to the design and you can then start to say, okay, does my team have the adequate qualifications to do this? What is their experience? They might have really great acute mental health experience, but you might be doing a subacute unit or you might be doing a psychiatric emergency care centre and they've only ever done emergency departments and they've never looked at mental health and emergency together. So you then have to look at your team and say, okay, are we adequately resourced? If we're not, how do we upskill? How do we get ourselves there? And then once you've done that, you're at the start line. You know what I mean? You have just reached the start line. I guess then after that, you have to really assess what is the brief? What's the functional brief? You need to sit down through your proper user groups and start your concept scheme design, your detail design, go through that, go through the journey, have adequate user consultation, where there's going to be safety issues, don't give up. If it means that there are examples of on suites that don't have doors, and yes, I know that that could be good and you can go through a consumer process of that. If that's the outcome, then make sure you challenge that as a decision and through the licensing process, you consider the other options and the alternatives and, and post-occupancy. So as you make decisions through the process, document those decisions, have periods through occupation where you assess whether that was the right decision or not. Have sufficient budget to retrofit things. Leave some budget aside. Don't spend it all at the very end of a mental health project because sure enough, you're going to need some budget post-completion because things don't go as planned, particularly in mental health design. Accept that. Say to people, we are going to get some things wrong here. We're going to think that this hinge is going to work and then we're going to replace all 300 of them. And that is actually possibly going to happen so that when it happens, people don't get shocked. It's not due to a lack of process or a lack of controls or a lack of risk management. Sometimes it's just by virtue of a combination or a series of events and sometimes quite unfortunate events that happen very close to commissioning or post-occupancy that scare people and you have knee-jerk reactions to things and then you have to make alterations but that is mental health and it is challenging and it is difficult but it's worth it innovate that's the other thing I say innovate surround yourself with people who are willing to take on a challenge have an amazing builder that just doesn't stop thinking and when you give him a problem or her a problem and they go you know what I had this idea on the weekend and this is how we're going to do it and I'm going to prototype it. So just get people that are as passionate as you could possibly find and put them in your team and make sure that you're constantly innovating. Take the private licensing or the hospital, if it's a public hospital or it's a private hospital, whoever's in charge of signing off 
or having influence over how it comes to operations, take them on the journey, tell them the issues, let them help solve the issues with you. Never feel like the team has to have all the solutions. Be vulnerable, particularly with licensing in the private space. I've seen a lot of private operators make mistakes by not going to private licensing and saying, we can't solve this issue. Have you seen it done better anywhere else? Or how do we comply? We're struggling to comply. Do you have any ideas? And then they might say there's an operational way to do that. And then you might go back and engage with the hospitals. In a long and roundabout way, David, I think the essence to mental health is passion. It's understanding, it's empathy, and it's knowing that you're not going to always know the answers or get it right and you've got to pivot and innovate. Yeah, I think that's really good. And the take-home message for me there is about self-awareness. Self-awareness is such a good indicator of leadership. There are plenty of teams that I've done mental health when they might have only done acute or they might have done PEC or they might have done adolescence. But mental health is such a huge array. It's its own healthcare industry, really. So for people to say, I've done mental health, well, let's dig a bit deeper. I don't mind if you do or don't know it, but just be aware of what you do and don't know. Because when people take you on that rabbit hole of I've done everything, well, no one's done everything. So it's good to have that team. That's exactly right. And if you haven't done an eating disorders unit before, say you haven't done an eating disorders unit before and get a better understanding of what that journey is like for a patient and how they try and rehabilitate that patient and what the challenges are before you jump in and just administer whatever you're told to draw. So yeah, it's really about knowing what you don't know and being willing to learn. Yeah, I I totally agree. Just before we go, it's coming up a lot at the moment, especially in private and public health, no matter where you are around Australia, the shortage of inpatient beds with mental health at the moment where the resource and challenge of not having enough psychiatrists there's a psychologist where a lot more people are doing things online because of covid to recruit enough people to enhance inpatient beds at the moment it seems to be quite a systemic problem i'm thinking quite a few hospitals around australia what do you think the solution is for that Yeah, we're hearing this from all our operators that psychiatrists are in great shortage and we know that people are trying to access psychs and can't. So it's a huge issue and I certainly don't have any solutions to it right here, right now. There's a lot of concern from the operators that they know they need to build more mental health beds or fill more mental health beds, but they can't because there's this issue with the shortage of psychiatrists. So that obviously means that more psychiatrists need to come through the system. To that, one thing that I do think is that we do need to give people who are studying medicine better understanding of what psychiatry is and the environment that psychiatry can provide and particularly private practice psychiatry. I think that a lot of people studying medicine get public psych rotations and think that that is actually the only way that they can work in the future. They're really hard units. I've spent a lot of time on public psych units in my career and building and redesigning and they're not easy places to be and I can understand why a good medical student coming through is perhaps dissuaded by that. But I think that we do a really bad job of showing the private psychiatry journey and the fact that you can have public and private appointments in psych. You can just also have private. I think that we have a responsibility to work with universities and show that 
there is a little bit of a journey there that perhaps all students don't get before they decide how they want to specialise. That's one area I think we could probably improve and perhaps public and the private sector with the universities need to work together a little bit better. Yeah, I agree. I think that can be applied to the nurses and psychologists as well to actually enhance the team collaboration because to rely on one source of truth and one source of treatment, it would be limited. So to actually be more collaborative where everyone within that space can actually help contribute to patient care. So I think that's a good point as well. So Alex, just before we finish, I did want to ask you a little bit more about your research into aspergillus and into fungal contamination during construction. I know it's a little bit off topic with mental health, but I just think it's such an important part to actually have someone who's co-authored an article. It's just too good an opportunity to miss. Do you mind just tell us a little bit more about your research and exactly what you found and more importantly, what we can do within our industry to make sure that contamination doesn't occur during construction? Yeah, so years ago when we were working on the Wollongong Cancer Centre, which was a health infrastructure project in New South Wales, we were very concerned about an excavation that was occurring immediately adjacent to the Cancer Centre, but also we were undertaking a new bunker and really substantial refurbishment works within the Cancer Centre. And we had a team of people who knew quite a bit about the risks of invasive aspergillus and patients with compromised immune systems. So most of the patients that are obviously undergoing chemotherapy have significantly compromised immune systems. We knew that an excavation and also the dust that was being caused by the construction works was going to increase the likelihood of those patients getting sick and developing a fungal infection within their lungs and that if that were to occur, the mortality rate could increase in that cohort. The head of infectious diseases at the Elora Shoalhaven Local Health District, myself and with the permission of Health Infrastructure, worked with the University of Melbourne who were updating the guidelines at the time and we did some research as part of that project And what we found was that it is risky and it does increase the risk of death in some instances of these types of projects where construction works are adjacent to particularly stem cell or bone marrow or patients who are receiving chemotherapy. So for me, infection control during construction and the infection control guidelines and the administering of dust suppression and proper hoardings and education of people who work within the healthcare space to actually understand that the risks are serious and they're real. It's really practical, simple things like changing the car park for where the cancer centre patients park, making sure that it's not right next to the open cut excavation. Simple things like changing the entry through the hospital, even looking at the relocation of potentially chemotherapy departments or inpatient oncology wards during construction projects. All of these things make a huge difference and they need to be taken really seriously. Obviously, there's a lot of mechanical things that we've looked at over the years. There's a whole bunch of guidelines and very qualified mechanical engineers across Australia who know how to manage that and putting additional HEPA filtration and looking at taking outside air off. So there's a lot of technical things that you can do that are well within the capability and the scope of these large scale and medium scale construction projects that can impact patients. So 
yeah, I encourage anyone who listens to this podcast and is concerned or wants to know more, they can reach out to me personally and I'm happy to make some connections and obviously the guidelines are out there, but it's definitely something that needs to be taken incredibly seriously. And there was a period in my life where I was very passionate about this particular sphere and obviously spent a fair amount of time advocating for people to be better informed and for guidelines to be available. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's fantastic. The ability to actually put some research and some evidence behind the theory, because it's something that some people know very well and some people don't know at all, which scares me, especially when you're doing a refurb in maternity or transplant or cardiac or anything like that. It just scares me that people don't know it. I think people think that infection control is like a box they need to tick and they've got an infection control plan and they've got it signed off by the infection control person at the hospital and then they put it in their top drawer and close it and then they get on with the job. That is the last thing, absolute last thing that we want. Absolutely. I'm sure we could swap stories about infection control to the cows come home, but we are out of time. Alex Belcastro, I think you are absolutely fantastic. I think your ability to drive not only yourself, but this industry forward has been fantastic. Your ability to have passion behind your work and purpose mixed with research is just fantastic, which is why you're in the position you are today. So thank you so much for your dedication to this industry and to your job and to making sure that people's lives are better and the clinical outcomes are better as well. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, David. You've been listening to the Australian Health Design Council podcast series, Health Design on the Go. If you'd like to learn more about the AHTC, please connect with us on LinkedIn or our website. Thank you. Thank you.